Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. The Square Ball Podcast. Hello there, welcome to this bonus edition of the Square Ball Podcast, where we thought we'd delve into the 100-year history of Leeds United. I'm Dan Moylan, this is Michael Normanson. Hello. And with us, Moscow White, Daniel Chapman, author of a book, don't you know? You may have mentioned this once or twice before on the podcast. I was going to say thank you for welcoming me uh, to the podcast uh, (laughs) in a very different role. <laughs> yeah, we thought we'd have a chat about it. First of all, let's get the plug out of the way. So we'll do the, the horrible, grubby, whorish commercial bit. Yes. 100 Years of Leeds United, 1919 to 2019, is published by Icon Books of uh, Omnibus Business Centre, 39 to 41 North <laughs> he, Road. He, he doesn't do much selling. And it's available because they're really good publishers. Um, some people have, when they've seen me tweeting about this, have responded like, where can I get it? Bookshops. It's actually a book in bookshops, which boggles my mind slightly. Apparently it's going to be in the window of Waterstones in Leeds. That is exciting. I will say, by the way, uh, it's also available on Amazon as well. And if you've seen the pictures this weekend uh, of Jeff Bezos's latest yacht, uh, if you want to contribute towards his next yacht and his next helipad, then you can get it on there as well, can't you? You can. It's worth pointing out that if you don't want to go down the Amazon route, you're any local independent bookshop, you can go into any bookshop in the country and possibly Europe worldwide as well, you should be able to just go into any bookshop in the world and say, can you get hold of this book for me? And they will. Alternatively, uh, the squareboard.net, if you root around on there, you can get a signed copy that I will post to you myself personally. And obviously, we don't operate with the same margins as Amazon, so it's a couple of quid more expensive, but yeah. this, this handsome devil will sign it for you and personalise it. Well, I'll sign it if you want. It's up to you. I mean, I'm happy to take a bit of credit for this book. <laughs> I've not read it, but I assume, I assume me and Dan feature heavily. Um, I think you get thanks in the acknowledgements. I remember the people on the way up. Am I uh, am I first or? Oh, probably. I do it alphabetical order, don't I? Just to make sure I'm not upsetting anybody. Um, yeah. Good. That's all I asked for. Screw you, Michael. Anyway, listen, let's get into the content of it because we've, yeah. we've done the hard sell now. There's some really good stuff in there. I've read, I think I'm about 40% of the way through, through the thing and there's a lot of pages. What is it, 400 and? It, yeah, it's 430. Uh, let me, I've got a copy here. 400 and. 35 is the last page of the epilogue. There's about 450 printed pages in the whole damn thing. Yeah, I'm up to sort of the early John Charles era now, and I have to say it's fascinating. What I've really enjoyed, and this is what we're going to set this up as, is that they're actually, like Money Troubles, for example, it's not something that's a modern phenomenon with Leeds. It's been happening basically since the get-go, hasn't it? So we've picked three themes that we want to tiptoe around, first of which is money. It's always been an issue from the book, so... Why? Why are we cursed? <laughs> I mean, I don't know why. I can give you the what's, maybe some of the why's. I think that's one of the things that became really interesting about writing it because I didn't know what I'd get out of all the pre-Don Reavy stuff because it all burnt down in the West End in 1956. That's that's the main problem that any historian of Leeds United, which I didn't set out to be, has come up across. But I thought, I'll poke around, I'll see, because there's a lot of digital archives now and there's new places to look, and because people have previously written uh, histories of Leeds United and knew where to look. So I was kind of like, I can look at some of these things. And yeah, finding out in more detail about um, Leeds City, who were the the forerunners of of Leeds United, that um, within the first couple of seasons of Leeds City setting up in 1904, they'd backed themselves into a corner because they'd spent loads of money sorting Elland Road out, making Elland Road a big 
ground. What I had not come across before was that um, Archibald Leach, who designed the beautiful uh, stands at Glasgow Rangers and at, at Everton, was invited down to give his, well, as like a consultant, he didn't design a stand, but he came along and looked at the ground as well, the first things they did. Um, so they sorted all that out, and then it was a case for a few years that we had a really nice stadium, but it was kind of a bit of a shame about the team. Did they change the pitch orientation under the Leeds City years? Because that I went, oh my God, I never knew that. Yeah, and if you, I can't take credit, if John, if you've read John Howe's 80% of Elland Road in detail, he cottoned onto that, that yeah, after the first season, it was because the low fields off Lowfields Road. Before Lowfields Road even existed at this point, there wasn't a road there. They built it to facilitate the stadium, didn't they? Yep. But there were low fields, and when you have low fields, they tend to be damp. And these were some very damp fields on the low at the bottom of the hill. Lots of water. There's a People may know that there is a well underneath the pitch because the Wortley Beck was culverted so they could build the ground on top. So it was a muddy, horrible bog. And to try and solve that, yeah, they, they turned the pitch round. It had been... Rugby league, well, rugby as it was then, um, Northern Union rugby was being played by Holbeck. And when they decided to quit, because they lost a playoff in uh, 1904. Again, <laughs> ah, you see, it all makes sense. These things keep coming on. If you if you want to believe that Elland Road is cursed, the match was actually played in um, Huddersfield. They, they lost to St. Helens and they basically decided that because... Leeds had two rugby league teams already in the first division of the Northern Union. They lost the promotion, uh, the promotion playoff to join them. And they're like, just give up. And Manningham rugby team in Bradford had become Bradford City the year before. So they were like, oh, let's switch to football, soccer. And that was at the exact moment that, um, I've gone off the money tangent, but this is the way it, it, it tends when I start on this. Hunslet AFC, who began as Leeds Steelworks in 1899, nicknamed the Twinklers. The first genuinely good football team that uh, the City of Leeds had, good enough to apply for election to the second division if they'd had a permanent stadium, which they didn't have. And because they didn't have one, 1903, they ended up with nowhere to play. So they took a year off. 1904, the same year that Holbeck Rugby League are giving up, Hunslet AFC got back together. They had a meeting, say, oh, let's let's start again. Changed their name to Leeds City. And then Norris Hepworth came along and said, I'll do all the money for this, along with a couple of other people. And Holbeck said, oh, you can you can use this ground. So it's um, it's always been, I'd not realised until I looked at this, that there is a massive question of how the famous meeting that started Leeds City at the Griffin was on such and such a day. I can't remember exactly. Three days later, they played the first game. It's like, how did they manage to get that together so quickly? It's because, actually, the roots of the club are this Leeds Steelworks team that had taken a year off. When they all came back together, changed the name, and kind of the three things came together. The money, the ground, and the Hunslet team. So Leeds City wasn't just a a snap out of nothing. We actually have roots, and the first reports of uh, Leeds City's matches says kind of gives us the credit for winning the Leeds Hospitals Cup and we won the Yorkshire League a couple of times as Hunslet. So we can trace the entire story back now to 1899, which is crazy. That's fascinating. We could have won the bloody Leeds Hospitals Cup this last season <laughs> with all the injuries, hey? Boom, hey? boom. There we go. Why have we always been skint then? Sorry, we got waylaid then. I'm fascinated by this because uh, we've always had financial problems. Well, it did start with that was the first problem. The club admitted after a while that one of the first things I had to sort out was uh, getting a loan for work on the stadium and the first bank wasn't into that so they had to switch banks and that became expensive and they just immediately started arguing about it. There was the angry shareholder meetings with the, the point of we've got a really nice stadium but we're losing money hand over fist. They, they made a profit in the first season. After that they didn't make a profit um, until I think the last season and it got quite crazy. We had a manager, uh, Frank Scott Walford was the uh, second manager And when they were reorganising, the shareholders basically said, you have to reorganise the board. We're going to have different people. We're going to elect some of us to come on there and sort this out. And he had an argument with uh, a director who was called Walter Preston. And if you uh, pause, I will find you the dialogue because I absolutely love the the conversation, um, I'll call it, that they had on the pitch at Elland Road after a training session. So they were having angry words. And what actually caused the argument between them was never sorted out. But uh, Scott Walford basically said to Preston, come into the middle of the Elland Road pitch away from all the watching players. And he said to him, I've got you across here to tell you what you are. 
You are the biggest liar in Beeston. You are a pig. You are a damnable liar. You are not an honest man, and my players have more honesty in their toes than you have in your body. Strong? They're strong opinions. And then they started uh, shoving each other about. Mr Preston, the director, made some kind of gesture with an umbrella and he was threatening to call his solicitors. So Mr Scott Walford, very uh, Kiko Casilla style, swung a punch and broke his jaw. (laughs) It's all very kind of Queensbury rules, isn't it? I will get you, sir, with you. How dare you say these things about me in the centre circle? What's beautiful about it is they did shake hands and leave as friends. (laughs) Um, I think at that point, uh, Preston hadn't realised his jaw was broken because it ended up in court. That's how come we've got a good transcript because it was reported um, in the papers. But again... Uh, they both gave their evidence, they gave their version of events, and then the judge about halfway through was like, right, and so, but you're actually fine, and you're you're essentially friends now. It's like, come into the back room, and then just sort it out, and just said, like, shake hands, men. Let him break your jaw, then we'll call it, we'll, it's all even then. But poor old uh, Frank Scott Walford ended up part, paying some of the players' wages, particularly there was one summer where all the, Norris Hepworth, who, Norris Hepworth was the son of, he was a son in Hepworth and Son, and he was the managing director of the company. And that company became one of the biggest clothing manufacturers in Leeds and the world. Is it next now? It is now next. Ah. Yeah, carried all yeah, the way yeah. through. Good. Say average book. And he uh, he was on holiday, and, and the other directors weren't putting any money in, so Scott Walford ended up paying uh, wages out of his own pocket. And they kept leaning on Scott Walford because managers in those days, they were called secretary managers. So they were almost more an administrative role than anything else. And uh, he was, he kept, they kept saying, well, can you come up with a financial rescue plan? So he would try and it wouldn't work. And they said, well, can you come up with another one? Hang on a second, just to pause for a second. So yes. managers used to look after the finances. They used to... I mean, po- Neil Warnock was born in the wrong era, wasn't he? They used to post out the... Uh, <laughs> post out the application forms for season tickets was one of the jobs. Really? Yeah, and but then you would have a trainer looking after the team and the team, the actual lineup would be selected by committee. It's almost like the American football model, isn't it, where you've got sort of a, uh, a head of the backroom staff, like the, uh, I can't remember the name of them, but um, Billy Bean was one, wasn't he? Wasn't yeah. like the coach of, um, of whoever it was that Billy Bean managed. It's like front of house manager, yeah. isn't it? Yeah, front, ma- front office That's manager. The, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it used to be a front office job. and uh, But it meant you could also blame him for things going wrong on the pitch. So everything started getting blamed on Frank Scott Walford. And he, he, said, uh, uh, he said it was affecting him and his family, which is not nice. What's kind of amuses me is he made a... He ended up giving the board an ultimatum. He said, if you do not pay me the money that you owe me by the 31st of March... I will resign. And the board was like, okay, crack on then. <laughs> and they they gave him a, a carriage clock, I believe, or like a, a silver inlaid cigarette case. I'm like, you resign and I guess we don't have to pay you the money back. <laughs> I don't know if he ended up getting his money back, but they, they took it as, a, it was like the weakest ultimatum you could, you could possibly imagine. If you don't give me my money back, I'm going to go away. What jumped out at me as well is when we got promoted to the first division for the very first time, already they were passing around the begging ball, weren't they? Was it Lenders of Fiverr campaign? The Lenders, well, the Lenders of Fiverr campaign. So we're on to Leeds United. Sounds very Ken Bates. <laughs> this is a massive deal, actually. This is the one thing that when uh, I was writing the book, or when I worked this out, I was like, oh, this answers a huge question because a huge question about Leeds United's history and why I expected there to be very little to talk about before Don Revy is we were rubbish before Don Revy became our manager. There was John Charles, he was a shining light. Apart from that, nothing. So why? And I, I didn't expect to be able to answer that, but um, the Lenders of Fiverr campaign, there's a clip on, you can find it on YouTube, there's like a Pathé News clip that shows uh, the West Stand with this written across the front and all the... Uh, titles they just say Leeds United in financial trouble they need £25,000 and yeah we, it was straight after promotion Hilton Crowther who people will probably hear more of him this year he was the guy who wanted to bring Huddersfield Town to Elland Road after Leeds City were banned and he was like if you're going to start a new team I'll just bring the players and the manager and we'll just play and we'll be Leeds he, he, Leeds Trinity was a one name because it was going to be Leeds City with the City of Leeds and Huddersfield three things they went for Leeds United and that didn't work. Huddersfield fans suddenly had an interest in football and said, no, nah, we want to keep the team. So they kept the team. Hilton Crowther came to Leeds and bankrolled the club. And he basically paid for Leeds to get into the first division in four seasons. Once there, he said, I've put £50,000 into this. I'd like £35,000 back. 
and I'll step down as chairman. My work here is done. Major Albert Braithwaite could be the new chairman, and that's fine. What a name. That's a brilliant name. Major Albert Braithwaite. I'd like to go back and find out more about Major Albert Braithwaite. He uh, he came back from South Carolina in, in the First World War, where he was an army instructor. With uh, he'd, uh, he'd married the youngest of four daughters of a South Carolina family. Brought, I think they lived in... They lived in Adol, and there's like a very brief report that says she uh, she's getting used to the cold and learning to like football. So it was uh, Major Albert Braithwaite who came up with Lenders of Fiverr. It was either going to be that or support your sport, because they really wanted. And this is kind of a recurrent theme of Leeds from the start with Norris Hepworth was reliant on one person paying all the bills. And there was another guy called Alf Masser who was uh, involved with Leeds City then, and he was involved with Leeds United when they were setting up, who was a big advocate of like, we need to spread the load. If we could get 10,000 people in the city to pay £5 each and we all own the club and it's democratic and then we're not relying on somebody pulling the plug as Hilton Crowther was effectively doing. He was, that summer, he didn't pull the plug. He'd left a lot of money in Huddersfield when he moved to Leeds. He said, just pay me some money back and I'll leave the the rest there because he was very rich. He owned a lot of mills and everybody expected he was kind of doing the same in Leeds. He was like, I'd like I've paid 50,000. I'd like 35,000 pounds back. You can have that 15 grand for free. Uh, 35,000 pounds is about 2 million pounds now. And he said, there's not really a, a mad hurry, but try and raise it. And, and then the city can have the club rather than me owning it. So that's fine. That summer, mid November, he suddenly comes up with, actually, I need that money now. Because what he'd done, he'd needed money himself and he had taken out a mortgage against the debt. And if that wasn't paid back by the 31st of December 1924, the people who had lented, uh, lent him the money from London would seize the club, sell the players and close it down. It's all a bit Ridsdale, isn't it? Bondholders and debt and finance. We've touched on it a couple of times recently. Uh, REFF, Registered European Football Finance, borrowing against this and borrowing against that, mm. been up to our eyeballs in debt and needing it back immediately. The uh, the full story why that mortgage was taken out, you can read more about it in the book, but appears to be related to, one, his divorce, and two, his long-running affair with uh, Mona Vivian, who was one of the most famous actresses of the day, and uh, 18 years his junior, who uh, they ended up... Uh, I smell a scandal! Yeah, basically, um, but it put Leeds right in the in the problem. So six weeks through uh, November and December, huge fundraising campaign, an office at the Corn Exchange where people were going down, pouring money over the counter. The Yorkshire Evening Post wrote some of it in dialect. So one of the, um, a miner from Normanton came and he thumped 100 one-pound treasury notes on the counter and said, and... This accent is because it's written like this in the the how the Yorkshire Evening Post reported it in 1924. I don't get to the game every time they're at him, but I do want them to keep going. That kind of stuff. Was so it a guy from Newcastle. <laughs> it was very grassroots because uh, no matter how hard Albert Braithwaite tried, he sent 500 flyers out to businesses in the city, and he got one response or like no responses. Tetley's put a load of money, and there were a few big ones. But the businesses who were saying, your takings go up when Leeds play, when we have football crowds coming here, weren't interested, which, again, has that ring of familiarity about it. Long story short, they saved the club. <laughs> they just about, they had to they had to go to London and beg for extra, extra time at Christmas, say, can we have another week? Um, and then even when they just about managed to do it, they had enough money in, they didn't. They told us, they came to an arrangement, like, we're, we're so close it's not worth your while closing the club where we can have this money in a couple more weeks. And uh, and yeah, Albert Braithwaite ended up, he had to go to Switzerland to recover. He had to go and take a holiday because he was exhausted. Some mountain air, that will sort me out. Pass me my cigarettes. It was, it was it's crazy. Yes, six. And then, uh, but there was no, um, there was no problem with Crowther over this. He was presented once it was all sorted out. They did a big party saying that he'd basically given the club to the city. They gave him a, uh, a photograph album with uh, photos of and signatures of all the players of the federals. And it was described to him on the occasion of his handing over to the Leeds public a first division football club. The problem was what he'd handed over was the football club, which is now uh, in the ownership of Albert Braithwaite's running it. But the the thing with the lenders of Fiverr campaign, those Fivers were all bonds and every bond, uh, it was a 7.5% interest rate. So every year from then on, we had to pay 7.5% interest on the modern equivalent of £2 million. Wow. 
So every penny that came into into Leeds United, before we could spend on players, before we could spend on the ground, was servicing this debt for 25 years. And so that's why it's the big thing before Reevee. Why why we got into the first division? Why didn't we have a better team? Why couldn't we stay there? Why were we yo-yoing? Why wouldn't we buy good players? Why did we have a stand that in 1956, when we finally got to the first division again, burnt down because it had been touched since 1904 because all the money had gone on paying off this bond? And that's interesting as well, because you kind of, uh, the bond is reminiscent of the East Stand bonds. And one of the other yeah. threads I've picked up on f- through the book as well is that we've continuously sold players to improve facilities. And I know that's kind of just how business works, but we did it, you know, you think of Delph with the cladding famously, but Batty to pay for the overpayments on the East Stand. And uh, John Charles obviously went for the West Stand. It was fascinating. Wilf Copping. Nine thousand pounds to Arsenal. He was the, the next uh, one. The next one on my list. Yep, and uh, and I've forgotten the name because there's so many in here. Of the the we sold a player to uh, Tottenham for eight thousand pounds, and then he moved immediately to Manchester City because he didn't like it down south, <laughs> which is so beautiful. But yeah, we there was a long running campaign, and it, it it's one of the things that does kind of establish Leeds United as it was. We had a manager, Dick Ray, uh, was the manager um, around this time who. Hell of a good superhero power, that as well, by the way. He would not buy uh, players. And um, the supporters were going nuts because although he, he established a really brilliant youth policy, he he loved developing players from youth um, and he hated buying them. He's And he's got <laughs> almost, you can see like Bielsa has some uh, some things in common with this. But his uh, his statistics at the end that everybody was arguing about, yeah, so I found the page... Uh, he developed footballers of the likes of Copping, Hyde, Keatley, Finesse, Cochrane, both Milburns, names that in the 1930s would mean a lot. But everybody held against him that the transfer fees spent were £3,000 and received £25,000. Oh, and nothing has changed, does it? Nothing has changed. Nope. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. To pick up on a thread that you just uh, mentioned there, the club's relationship to the city, that's the second topic we want to quickly delve into because it's always been a bit weird. That's what I've noticed from this. And and you see that one of Rajasani's big moves is to be to get the city back on side, hasn't it? The business community has always been very closely tied to the club. And, you know, as you've gone on record there and explained quite a lot, going to the city and the businessmen, because Leeds is a rich city. Yeah, and it doesn't necessarily help its football club or hasn't throughout history... And um, that weird relationship, so in the, the 1920s when they needed money, it all came from the people, it didn't come from businesses. And the strange attitude, I put it down to, and one of the other questions I looked at right at the start of writing the book is why we didn't have a soccer team in Leeds until, uh, we didn't have a league soccer team until 1904 when Leeds City formed. And then it took 
that went by the wayside and, and why we're one of the last teams to be celebrating a centenary, but not starting until 1919, which for the size of the city, and again, to only have one football club in the city is strange. Rugby is, is, is the problem, and I think it possibly explains a lot going on, not just why we were so late starting a soccer team, um, but then why the attitude of the city towards that soccer team has always been quite strange because rugby in the uh, the 1880s and 1890s in, in Leeds was huge. And I think it's hard to, uh, when you look at the crowds Rhinos get now and maybe the state that rugby league is in now compared to football, um, it's hard to realise. But there were, we had Leeds St John's who became Leeds Rugby League. There was, uh, Bramley had a, a brilliant team. Hunslet had a brilliant team. Um, we talked about Holbeck were trying to get to, they were a late start and they were coming every weekend you could see, because people didn't go to away matches in those days because train travel was in its infancy. You would just go to the other side of Leeds and you would watch Hunslet playing top division rugby. And then the next weekend you'd go to Headingley and you'd watch Leeds playing top division rugby. So you, every weekend was taken up. So you didn't, and you only had your only time out from working in the mill was Saturday afternoon, and then Sunday you go to church. So even if you didn't follow one of the big rugby teams, and don't forget that they would have to play each other as well. So we had the equivalence of Liverpool and Everton and Manchester derbies happening between three or four really strong uh, teams in the city. All this top class rugby, and then if you had your local rugby club as well, that would all that would be tied to a church. So Leeds uh, Rhinos origins in Leeds Leeds St John's. So church team and uh, rugby was promoted because it's muscular Christianity and it's good and healthy to be a rugby supporter and uh, you'd watch your rugby team on Saturday afternoon you'd go to the same church where all the rugby fans also went to on Sunday morning Sunday afternoon would be probably the church social it was all tied together and then in summer you played cricket for the mm. same for the same bunch so there's absolutely no time left and then if you think about who was left so who is not going to church they're the soccer supporters so it's all the it's, the unholiest of places Elland Road exactly it's all the heathens and the ungodly are going like well we does, don't it does explain a lot yeah they want to go and watch uh, um, a, a soccer team and that's what they uh, they ended up doing and I think that attitude um, because obviously all the business owners of the city are good solid Christian characters and you've basically got like Elland Road is like a a little stall that they don't want to support. Um, and they turn their noses up and they, 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 they back the rugby team. And that was like 80 years ago, whatever these are, <laughs> for longer. And you can maybe trace the... So yeah, Tetley's did support um, Leeds United, but they were always much more tightly. You see the sponsorship tied to rugby much more strongly than it ever was for football throughout the 20th century. That is interesting. One thing that's uh, always popped up as a theme, you know, like Ellen Road obviously needs a bit of work doing to it now. And we look at a new West Stand... And um, like Angus has said, hasn't he? Angus Kinnear, we need to probably look at about 55,000 to accommodate the demand. And a lot of fans, and you see it on the forums going, we don't need a stand that big. That's ridiculous. Let's get to let's get to 40,000 first before we think about 50. You know, that, that kind of historical doing down of our own mm. crowds. Because we've always kind of been a little bit up and down with the crowds. And that's another thing that you've touched on a lot in the book is the kind of the underwhelming attendances when they were expecting bigger numbers. And it's, it seems to be a theme that's kind of run throughout the club's history. I mean, that first uh, Lenders of Fiverr game, our first ever game in Division 1, was meant to be a huge celebration. Um, they were expecting 50,000 people and 30,000 people turned up. Um, and that's always been the the case. Don Reavy used to drive him mad that he would look around Elland Road and there'd be gaps, big gaps, compared to what uh, could have got into that stadium. I love this quote. Sorry, I was, I was going to say, I love the quote from Rach Carter. Do the men folk go to bed on Saturday afternoon? Yeah, and this was the time when we had John Charles was the, the greatest footballer in the world playing for second division Leeds and they couldn't they couldn't fill the stadium. To go. Imagine if whatever division Leeds are in now, say we're still in the championship and we had Messi and he'd come through our uh, youth system and he'd stayed. Yeah, Messi's career kind of tracks. If, if since 2004... Messi had been playing for Leeds United, but the crowds were just exactly the same. That it was like we went to those horrible matches in the the Steve Evans era, 
and he's got 18,000 people on a horrible cold Tuesday night and Lionel Messi. It was like that with John Charles. People people were grumpy because we weren't signing a player as good. Like, well, he were free though, wasn't he? What's he done with all our season ticket money? Um, and <laughs> A theme that's persisted, yeah. One of the other things about this, the wider city, because Leeds has always got that hardcore support and this was kind of... I started getting a bit troubled as I was writing the book because some of the words that we talked about at the start were like, it's going to be a celebration of the history of Leeds United. And when you're looking, it's like, well, you know, how do you celebrate low crowds and like this disinterest in people not going to watch John Charles? And you've got to make that difference of like Leeds United has a support worth celebrating that's always been there, that never abandons the club. And we know that people like Gary Edwards has not missed a game since the 60s. It's like people devote themselves to this football club. It's the rest of the city where you kind of have this this weird relationship. There's There were times in the, the 20s and 30s where Leeds started attracting attention because they were in a relegation battle. And it was this morbid interest. Suddenly everyone's like, oh, I want to go see that. When the West Stand burnt down in 1956, capacity was reduced, but loads of people wanted to come and see the next match played. They played that weekend against Aston Villa. Oh, I want to see this match in a burnt-out stadium. Fantastic. And that's always... a. Um, attracted the interest more than actually a really a good team. And we've always had that external support as well. Lots of travelling fans coming in and um, from around the world, from around the country. I was going to ask, at what point did that really kick in? Because obviously you said transport, not so good then, but in sort of modern times, Wakefield, York, it's kind of any, anywhere really within Yorkshire. Is it, is it's it got tied, a decent uh, base uh, of leads for Tied us. to the car, I guess. The growth of the car and buses and stuff, is it? I don't, I didn't track transportation movements. Of, well, I mean, what uh, era was it? Because we know that the car became a thing in the 50s and 60s. I just wondered if there was any correlation between the external support. Well, Good was, question, Michael. That. Yeah, it was there. Because you've stumped him, which is great. <laughs> it was there because you, you look at the, uh, again, the Lenders of Fiverr campaign, there's that miner coming from Normanton. There was a lot of people coming from Wakefield. And so train travel was enough that you could get into the city, but you wouldn't, there wasn't, it's more of the culture didn't exist of like you would follow leads to... Uh, London, that certainly came into play in the 1930s because we had a big, uh, no, I'm thinking of the 1950s, we had a big cup draw away to Arsenal and there was massive complaints about how difficult the British Rail were making it for the the fans to get there. They wouldn't put on an extra train. They were charging a fortune for the train. So they ended up, um, some fans booked charter flights from Eden Airport. They went and booked a plane. So we're into it now where people are following the club around. A journalist and a couple of others tried to hitch to the match, but they only got as far as Doncaster and realised it was a bad idea. Four in the morning, they just got to lift back. Um, but then there was a fleet, there was a huge fleet of coaches because the like, fine, if the railway's going to be difficult, Leeds United fans will just book our own coaches and go. So that came in about the 1950s. The, the, the wider support internationally is obviously the Reavy era when like the Norway, the Norwegian fans, you go to Oslo, beat the local team 10-1, and they say, oh, they must be good. Well, we'll watch them again. And uh, and television, once it started being on television, they they saw Saturday 3pm matches that uh, English fans didn't see. But it's, it's we, we as a club, I think, as a fan base, probably have more in common with or share the passion more with fans in Oslo than we might do with fans in Adel. They're the ones who just never showed any particular interest. Too posh up Adel, that's the problem. Yeah. Too posh for Ellen Road, and the, and that's the, it. Comes back to that thing of the the fans who went to Ellen Road being the kind of the outcasts of the city, and some of that came through in a lot of the reporting and a lot of the pleas from the club as early as the the twenties and thirties. We had a, a very young team, and they 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 got relegated, and Dick Ray kept them together, and the same team got promoted again. And while they were doing this, there were pleas from the club saying, "Please stop barracking our young players." Because we were horrible to our own team. There's a, there's a report in the Evening Post in the early 1930s that says, why is it that at Ellen Road, if Leeds go behind, the crowd turns and becomes like an away support. <laughs> it's like you could be in the other team's stadium and getting on the backs of the players being horrible to them. Half a mile up the hill at Hunslet Rugby League, they support the, the rugby team from the first kickoff to the last. They cheer them on. They never get on the players' backs. They always support them. And it's not a Leeds character because they demonstrate, yeah, Hunslet, a mile away, everything's lovely and the people couldn't be nicer. Elland Road, for some reason, they're all horrible. And one of my favourite stories in this is uh, um, in the 50s, Captain, the captain of the team was Tom Holly. I think it was the 50s. If I'm getting some of this wrong and you, you read the book and you're like, you fall, it's because it's 450 pages and my brain is like, still slightly fried. 
Tom Holly was the captain and the team uh, finally had a really good run and they had a big uh, supporter social in, I think he was at City Varieties and the players were in the front rows and Tom Holly stood up and he made a speech and he said, we've finally had, we've had a really good run in, in the Cups, we've got a good team, we've shown you what we can do and now me and the players are going to give back to you what you've given to us. And all the players at the front of the, the audience stood up, turned around to the fans behind them <laughs> and booed and yelled and, and basically gave it back to them. And, so, and everybody thought it was hilarious and they all joined in laughing. But that's what the players felt. So we look at Bamford now. Yeah, where I was it's just like, going to say, yeah, it's, it totally echoes the way that we are now with uh, a bad end to last season and then the abuse and hand-wringing and tears and tantrums and tiaras and all that that have gone on all summer until we beat, uh, until we beat Bristol. It's fascinating. But I was going to say, and this nicely teases up for, I guess, theme number three, which is the ability for us to shoot ourselves in the foot. Mm. Maybe that's where it comes from. I don't know, because like the amount of negativity this summer because of the end of last season, despite us being brilliant for most of the season, shooting ourselves in the foot in the playoff semi-final. But it's been there since forever, hasn't it? It's not a modern phenomenon. No, and one of my... Uh other kind of favourite stories that it's more about the relationship with the city than uh, than with the fans. But in 1970, when we 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 came really close to winning everything and we lost the FA Cup final replay, it was something like our 60th and something game that season. It was it was we got to the European Cup semi-finals and lost them to Celtic. And in the closing weeks of that season, when uh, Don Revy gave up on the league to try and win the European Cup and the FA Cup. And was playing the reserves, which the the football league fined him for. Of obviously. course, yeah. Um, the Evening Post started complaining about the standard of play at Elland Road, saying that they should be putting on a more entertaining show than this, and ignoring the fact that Don Revy was just playing the reserves because Everton had opened up. We were second in the league. We'd got to fifty games and only lost three, and then we're in the European Cup semi-final, the FA Cup final, and the. Yorkshire Evening Post starts whinging about the standard of entertaining play. When we lost the uh, the FA Cup final replay at Old Trafford to Chelsea in extra time, the first match had gone to extra time. Like The FA Cup semi-final had been to three replays for us to get past Scum. And the season had been shortened so that England could prepare for the World Cup. So it was all crammed in. The last six weeks, there's an interview with Jack Charlton before the, the FA Cup final saying he was sick of football. He didn't even want to play blow football. And his dog ran away at one point. So he had to spend a, his one morning <laughs> off. He had one morning off and he spent it chasing his, uh, his puppy around Whitkirk until he got it back. So this incredible effort to get as close as any team has ever come to winning everything there was going to be a civic reception and Don Revy said, that after the, losing the FA Cup final, I said, can't do it. Some of our players are already off with England. Some of them are injured. The rest of them are just knackered. Some have already gone on holiday. Famous Bielsa burnout, that, isn't it? Uh, I mean, if, yeah. And with a much smaller squad, we've done 15 players. And he said, and we didn't win anything. Said, we've, this, we've won nothing and, and Billy Bremner would be saying if we win nothing this season it's none of it's been worthwhile and that's what happened so he said we just can't do this civic reception so then the front page of the Evening Post instead of being this glorious haven't our lads come so close with one of this magnificent effort um, chicken hearted was the word from the, uh, the Lord Mayor um, <laughs> let me find the here's the, the quotes um, yes, yeah, so Reeve sent polite apologies and the Lord Mayor, John Rafferty, said that their decision not to have the civic reception is not only rude, but chicken-hearted. They promised to come, win or lose, and they've let everybody down. They've failed themselves and their proud record by behaving in a way that savours of a petulant boy taking his bat home. And I think it's really telling that the Lord Mayor, when criticising the behaviour of the football team, refers to cricket because that's the kind of, there's a social class distinction going on here, I think. The Yorkshire Evening Post added uh, in an editorial that United had let down their fans, their city and their Lord Mayor. Uh, all the civic plate and cutlery had already been brought up from the cellars of the Civic Hall and they were now having to cancel hundreds of pork pies and sandwiches. <laughs> Not the posh plates. Oh, Reavy uh, apologised again. But letters started flowing into the paper calling his decision an insult and a shocking display of bad sportsmanship. And that's uh, that summer, um, Reavy had job offers. And you look at that kind of reception from the city and you think, fucking hell, 
I'll just go and do this somewhere else. <laughs> We've always made it hard work for ourselves. That, that seems to be what we're saying, isn't it? Yes. Yeah, so that's theme three, isn't it? The self-defeat. And that, that, that season came at the end of our first five seasons in Division One after promotion with Don Reavy. When we, we, we hit Division One like an absolute train, we, we lost the first division in our first season up on goal average to scum. And then we lost in extra time in the FA Cup final to Liverpool. But those first five seasons from 1964 to 1969, uh, we were the only team to finish in the top four every season. We won more games than any other team in those five seasons and lost fewer than any other teams. But we had to sit there and watch while Scum won the league twice and then Liverpool won it and then Manchester City won it and then we finally won it in 1968-69. Same period, reached the FA Cup final three times, uh, sorry, the FA Cup semi-final three times. Only Chelsea and Everton did the same. They both won it before Leeds did. And then we were in the first Cup and from after we qualified for the first Cup, we reached the semi-finals three times, better than any other team in that competition and we only won it once. And we were Europe's best losers. You look at that record and you cannot say that we were not the best team in Europe. No other team is finishing in the top four every season. No other team is in their, their top division winning more games for four for five seasons to win more and lose less than any other team. That's the best team. And we won, well, really nothing. <laughs> it comes out of the first couple of times. We finally cracked the League Cup and then we finally cracked the league. And yeah, I think Revy... If there's a, a criticism I started thinking of with Reeving, this is, is he, he timed his his charges for glory quite badly. So the the sixty nine seventy season I was just talking about that ended up with the Port Pie controversy. We we kicked off. We'd won the Charity Shield. We were going to retain the league title, which is very difficult in itself. Win the FA Cup, win the European Cup, and then go from there to winning a FIFA. We're going to sponsor a World Club Championship for the first time. So we were going to we were aiming to be the five trophies champions of the world. But we're doing it in the season where it's being shortened by a month because Mexico nineteen seventy is the end of the year. And it's like if we'd chosen another season, if the season had like every other year, ended in May instead of at the start of April, we would have done that. We would have won all those games. Maybe the European Cup not because Celtic were brilliant. But then it was the look of the draw again that we got them in the semi-final instead of the final. Everybody was really disappointed. Eddie Gray and Billy Bremner and Peter Lorimer all wanted to play Celtic in the final and we got drawn in the uh, the semi-final. Billy Bremner, this is just a complete aside, it doesn't relate to anything, but he, uh, he went for a, I think he was either a header or a tackle, but he banged his head off the pitch and the pitch at Ellen Road was so hard that he was knocked out and he had to he had to leave the field and he spent the last uh, stages of our, the first leg against Celtic wandering around the dressing rooms, um, not knowing where, where he was um, and trying to get a taxi home. And he, at one point after the match, he just wandered into Celtic's dressing room and just sat down and they were like, what do you want? And he just didn't know where he was. And that's purely from banging his head off the pitch. Wow. But again, we we talk about Pat Bamford as like a bit of a comparison sometimes. Just checking, you know, the Derby playoff semi-final second leg. Yes. Did Liam Cooper <laughs> and or Kiko Casilla sustain any pitch-related head injuries just before, around the 40th to 42nd minute? It's possible. It's possible. But that um, the link between us shooting ourselves in the foot back to the, the 1930s, our first great team. So the glory years, we never quite got what we should have had. 1929-30, we had a team under Dick Ray that was called the wonder team of the first division. We had Willis Edwards, Ernie Hart and Russell Wainscott were all England internationals. We had a, um, a player called Jock White who we'd signed while we were getting relegated and then we kept the lads together, got promoted to the first division. They got the experience back in the first division and we had a two-point lead over Scum at the top of the first division going into the 1930s. We had the new Greyhound Stadium was opening next door. We're building that Lowfields Road, all the improvements <laughs> around the, 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 the ground. An ice hockey arena. <laughs> <laughs> it's all building up. Ellen Road's becoming that sporting mecca and we finally had the teams to match. They were called the wonder team of the first division by the national press. Then we lost five in a row uh, and ended up that season finishing fifth. But we're like, it's okay. We'll have a good second season with this lot in the first division. Wilf Copping came through, who became he became a legend at Arsenal, real rough player. Who uh, there's a story of him when he's older, um, intimidating youths on a tram who were messing <laughs> about, and he used to uh, he was a he was a central defender, and he used to not shave before games to make himself look more fierce and more intimidating. And uh, there's a report before he signed for Arsenal, he played against them for us um, in a huge match. The 
this relates to what we've seen before. It's the biggest game ever played at um, Elland Road up until that point. We went to Arsenal on Boxing Day and we beat them at Highbury, Herbert Chapman's favourite Arsenal for 50,000 people. Huge resort and that meant what had already been great interest in Leeds because people wanted to see Herbert Chapman's team, so we'd sold loads of tickets. 50,000 people turned up, the biggest crowd for any sporting event in Leeds and it was a nil-nil draw but it was absolutely brilliant and they said that... um, Wilf Copping played in defence for Leeds in that game for death or glory in that match. We played Blackburn Rovers in the next home game and I think the crowd was 11,000. So <laughs> that's the way we were. But this, so and, and yeah, so this way of swinging back and forth, we think we're okay. Wilf Copping's coming through as a young player. The two fam- famous Milburn brothers from Ashington, which is where we ended up getting uh, Jack Charlton and also getting Jimmy Adamson, were, uh, I think he, it was Jimmy Adamson, unless I'm making that up. We got relegated, basically. We had a team set up to win the league. We'd finished fifth. We'd been top. We were the wonder team of Division One. Kept them all together. Went down. And it went down on the last day. In the, the last minute of the last day, Blackpool equalised at Manchester City and the scoreboard at Elland Road changed to reflect that. And that was that for Leeds United. Echoes almost of 92-93 uh, there. Won the league. Terrible the season after. Yeah, it's crazy. That, that team, it's hard to say what actually went wrong apart from it being Leeds United. I think that was possibly the principal problem. That's been part of the fear this summer as well, that we've had such a good season last year, it relegation inevitably follows. A bit like we, like we managed with Blackwell, you know, playoff final, you think, OK, well, can yeah. build, we can build on this for the next year. Absolutely not. Champions League semi-finalists, this will only get better. I think that's, it won't. that's kind of the the message of all these kind of anecdotes. We're concentrating on the, the, the Reavy and earlier years and a lot of this, because... It is the centenary year and I didn't, when I started writing this book, I didn't think I would have, I thought it was going to be like a lot of other books, that it would be Reavy and After Heavy because I hadn't anticipated the research that was possible um, and also the stories that were there to be found about the years before. But I'm quite proud, I've, I've got this as a, a statistic in that Reavy doesn't appear in the book properly until page 151, I think. He actually pops up as a player a couple of times because... We were managed by, we had this weird dance with uh, Rach Carter where we almost took him as our manager, but then he went to be assistant manager to Frank Buckley at Hull. But when when he took that job, Frank Buckley immediately left to become Leeds manager. And then when Frank Buckley decided he got sick of the lack of ambition at Leeds, so went to manage Walsall in the, at the bottom of the third division. Um, and then Rach Carter followed him. But uh, Rach Carter had played with Don Reavy at Hull. Reeve had gone there from uh, Leicester because he was uh, stayed in the second division because he was a bit uh, fearful of going up to the first division. He didn't think he'd, he'd cope, so he, he carried on playing for Hull, um, what he thought he could learn from Carter. Rach Carter is a really interesting character. He's uh, He did not believe in training. He thought it was natural talent. You've either got it or you haven't. And when you see some pictures of him um, with his silver hair and he's kind of, he's a hot, if you imagine George Graham, he's, he's, he was the George Graham of his day with the same strolling playing style. Um, and uh, But he won everything by the age he was 23. Won every every domestic honour with Sunderland. And then came across John Charles. He inherited John Charles at Leeds. And he'd already not really helped Don Reavy at Hull by not really having anything to teach him. And now he didn't really teach anything to John Charles. He uh, he put his boots on and tried to outplay him in friendlies and couldn't understand. He's like, where, why Charles didn't have this ego and this drive that was what had made Rach Carter successful. But yeah, the crossover there. So when we finally sold John Charles to Juventus, his last match was at home to Sunderland, whose captain was Don Reavy. And so they shook hands at the start of John Charles' last game. Fascinating, which is little, and there's also we we really needed a an inside forward for a lot of the years when we were trying to get out of Division Two, and Don Reeve's name kept cropping up, but uh, twenty thousand pounds too expensive. Can't spend money on transfers, can we? It's always been a struggle at Leeds, and uh, yeah, one of the uh, when we're talking about missed opportunities and self def- and uh, sort of defeating ourselves. Uh, I mentioned Jimmy Adamson there was a bit of a disaster as as Leeds manager, but one summer he had lined up. Um, a double deal. He reckoned we could trigger Kevin Keegan's release clause at Hamburg when he was European Player of the Year and kind of lined all that up and we we're going to sign him for half a million and Peter With from, uh, I think he was at Newcastle, who's a brilliant striker, put those two together and we'd be fine. But because attendances were falling under Jimmy Adamson, most of the fans thought he was probably the Yorkshire Ripper. Um, Reavy was kind of, um, Adamson was kind of had 
Revion is is back as well from the way he'd moved around. I think Sunderland he was he was always under pressure to emulate Leeds in a in a way. It was a name that, that was always on his back. And the board decided, like, no, it's too much of a risk to buy Kevin Keegan and Peter with. And then a, a year later, they gave um, Alan Clark the entire £1 million transfer budget to buy Peter Barnes. And that worked out really well from what I gather. Uh, read the book and you'll find <laughs> out that it necessarily did not. But yeah, it's a nice place to tie it up, actually. That So thanks for that. It's, it's actually it's a really, really good read. From what I've read of it so far, I am ploughing on with it. It's a big book and it is available, well, now, isn't it? August the 8th is the publishing date. It's available. Yeah. You can find it on Amazon. You can find it in all good bookshops. I think that's the phrase, isn't it? You've got to say all good bookshops. And from the squareball.net if you want it signed. And yeah, just to close off the thought that before I got distracted by Kevin Keegan was to say that, yeah, keeping Don Revy back to page 151, I'm pleased because it's giving those pre-Revy years the room to breathe. And if there's one thing I'm proud of in this book is that, and the boast I will make about it, because I'm not a particularly arrogant or boastful person, but I don't think as much detail on the years from 18, uh, 1889 when we're tracing Leeds Steelworks to through to 61 when Don Reeve became manager. It's not been put together between book covers with the rest of the history. It's not been told, basically. And I'm quite glad that in the centenary year, this is the book that kind of gets all that stuff out there and moves the focus a little bit from, from the glory years that have deservedly had it for so long. But yeah, this is the time to say, yeah, it's 100 years of Leeds United, not just the, the 60 of, of Reevy and after. And there's, there's people, stories, characters, hilarity, uh, laughter, tears um, that deserve attention as well. All the way through to the final chapter with Marcelo Bielsa. Yeah, that's where it ends. It, it ends, uh, oh, there's an epilogue after the Derby game because I couldn't quite leave it just <laughs> just at that. And, uh, and yeah, it is published by Icon Books. And it's on Amazon and it's in Waterstones and independent bookshops always need your support because Amazon is such a behemoth. Um, And I'll sign one for you if you get it from squareball.net. Lovely to chat about it. It's fascinating. Read the book and we'll speak to you soon. Thanks for listening. The Squareball Podcast. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 